breaching the fault lines of today. Welcome to Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser on the Blaze Radio Network. This is Dr. Zudi Jasser. Welcome to another episode this week of Reform This on the Blaze Podcast Network. Always great to be with all of you. Thank you for joining me again. If you're new, hope you get a dose of not only some reality, but uh, the topics that you just don't hear enough on the regular media and a little perspective from an American Muslim who not only loves his country, but also loves his faith and is looking for reform and takes responsibility seriously about what Muslims can do to make our condition, especially that against radical Islam, safer and sound. As we gladly finish this year 2020, I hope all of you have been able to stay healthy, well, your family's close, and I know if you're like our family, you are looking to get the kids back to school. Some of us think they've been out of school unnecessarily, but doing this remote learning is, as I said, half-assed learning, and uh, enough of this. We've got to get back to school, but get back to normalcy and take the risks. <laughs> There's a good cartoon that uh, was uh, part of a meme that showed welcoming in 2020 with needles falling from the sky and people bent over ready to get their vaccine. <laughs> it's an image sort of telling of where we've come in 2020 just to get us done with this morass. The numbers are spiking. And uh, yes, the virus is making its, way through, making its way through a population that is not vaccinated. And yet the death rates, the numbers of morbidity, mortality, they're significant. But are they much different than the flu? Perhaps in older populations. But again, non-vaccinated coronavirus going through a population that's not vaccinated. Hospitals are brimming in the 90% range. Some of them higher. ICUs a little higher yet. But again is what we're doing to this country economically, medically, clinically, with all the other diseases that we're trading, is it worthwhile? We've talked about that before. My positions still haven't changed. But let's go to some other topics. We see the Biden administration a few days away from actually being certified as the next president of the United States. And... If that comes to fruition on December 14th with the Electoral College certifying his election, then we'll have to deal with what I think is going to be Obama 2.0. We saw Ambassador Susan Rice this week appointed, selected as the domestic policy chair in the White House. Now, I find that interesting because most of, actually all of her preceding experience in Obama 1.0 was ambassador to the UN, NSC council before that. She's been a foreign policy presence, if you will. Hasn't really demonstrated any significant expertise, testimony or otherwise, on domestic issues. I wasn't even impressed with her foreign policy. She was the the leading appeaser of Islamists from Iran to the Muslim Brotherhood. She was the leading propagandist for the failure of American propaganda and a failure of American foreign policy as a result of her propaganda, as we saw with her famous, her infamous responses to queries about what happened in Benghazi. 
Now, where does that leave us? And then we know there's Rima Doden, who is the Senator Durbin staffer, Palestinian activist, sycophant with the Council on American-Islamic Relations and other Muslim Brotherhood legacy groups that couldn't even get herself to, to condemn suicide bombing without giving an apologetic saying, what else do you expect them to do, type, para- to paraphrase what she said. And this is the engagement I think we're going to see at a level unseen before an empowerment. You see the foreign apologists for Islamism now coming to do their connections for Islamists domestically. Susan Rice sort of running the domestic policy and then the engagement on the Hill being with Rima Doden. And God knows what other Muslim Brotherhood apologists we have working within the White House and within the executive branch at whatever opportunity there may exist. We see the Department of Defense now moving towards an appointee that wants to minimize the military impact of the Department of Defense and work more diplomatically, as if we've only had people that wanted war before, as if the State Department doesn't exist for diplomacy. Department of Defense prevents war by telling our enemies that they have a lot to fear, that our strength is something to behold and never to confront. That was the Reagan policy of peace through strength, and that ultimately, I think, is the only successful foreign policy and defense policy to prevent war. So I think we may see more of a propensity, proclivity for conflict because those our adversaries may see us as weaker. They see appeasement as a green light to move with whatever they want. What's going to happen with Iran, we don't know. But bottom line is, is the Islamists, we've talked, I've talked to you about the red-green axis before. And it's pretty clear on how the far left, the radical left and the radical Islamists work together in Iran, Venezuela, at the UN, red and green. And then we see it in Congress with Ilhan Omar working with AOC, Rashida Tlaib working with Presley and AOC and their squad, sort of the red-green axis at the Congress. Now, we find an Obama 2.0, in which Biden really hasn't made any novel appointments. There's been no apparent new character uh, of his administration, but simply a continuation of the Obama years. And I fear it's actually even though ideologically Obama was probably more ideological and Biden sort of has a 40-plus year history, almost five decades of political operative work as a senator, etc. Even though he seems more moderate than Obama did in his short senatorial history, I have a feeling he's going to be more radical. And the reason is he's going to be more detached. There's going to be an attempt to try to reverse whatever misperceived, misunderstood policies that they believe Trump did to America. So they'll try to give us whiplash back not only to Obama, but even worse, further to the left. Not to mention the empowerment of the far-left progressives. So Doden, as the liaison from Durbin's office now, from the White House to the Hill, to Suzanne Rice, Susan Rice, who is 
going to continue the appeasement of the far left and the Islamist that she learned abroad and will bring it home to the domestic policy. And now on, we'll see other Islamists that are being engaged and given platforms as if they needed more. Speaking of Islamist platforms, this week on the Arizona Republic, which is one of the Gannett newspapers, but it's the primary, I hate to call it that since its platform is so propagandistic, but it's one of the primary newspapers, the primary newspaper, if not for Arizona, they had a piece written by a reporter, apparently, though I would not call this reporting, I would call it unadulterated Islamist and far-left propaganda under the guise of news. Reporters by the name of Farah El-Tohami, El-Tohami wrote a piece called For Many Muslims in Arizona, 2020 marked the start of a new era of civic engagement. Seriously? I mean, even the title itself, it's actually a pretty fair title for what comes after this and that it's a, it is a complete whitewash as if the Islamists represent all Muslims, as if we're all progressives and far leftists, according to El-Tahami. She opens, she says, as progressive organizing groups across Arizona celebrated the state's historic wins for Democrats and marquee races in November election, one community also saw strides in civic engagement, Muslims. One community. Seriously? You gotta love how they always refer to the Muslims as one community. Who are the bigots? Isn't it bigoted to refer to us all as one monolithic community? And then it goes on to talk about how Deidre Abood ran for Senate and Congress and then in 20 ran for Maricopa Board of Supervisors. And then it talked about however younger Muslims started organizing, get politically active, and then on and on about the Council on American-Islamic Relations was to help Muslims become more civically engaged, collaborating with one Arizona coalition of various organizations with one goal, mobilizing voters. And then this goes on. To talk to the Islamist operatives, the Muslim Brotherhood sympathizers and legacy leaders here in America that under the guise of religious freedom actually are part of a political party that is an Islamic political party that seeks to simply empower under a platform of Islamism or political Islam. If you look at their platform, it is preventing Islamophobia, whatever that means. It is about promoting socialist ideas. It is about uh, weakening America globally. All these things are part of the Islamist platform, be it in Egypt, Pakistan, wherever it might be. Political Islam is about looking at our Muslim identity, not as simply a personal faith, but as a political movement, as it is in the Muslim Brotherhood and elsewhere. And fine, they exist, they uh, can be reported, but these stories that come out in Gannett newspapers and elsewhere, that report on us as one community, and then it interviews one of the members of the Arizona House, Senate, her name is Athena Salman, an apologist for Islamist groups, has repeatedly come out against Israel and against American relationship with Israel. 
and they reported on Jamila Rahman, a 22-year-old organizer who worked as a campaign manager for state rep Athena Salman, Democrat in Tempe. I was very deliberate in choosing her, and as part of that pipeline development, Salman said about Rahim, as part of that making sure that we're investing time and energy in our young people. Rahim, from ASU in May, graduated, said her experience in organizing began on campus, and then they go on to talk about her political organizing. It's interesting that then when they talk about Salman, they note that while she comes from Muslim ancestry, she is not Muslim. doesn't talk about why she left the faith or if she did not choose the faith, which I think would have been relevant in this identity piece about Muslim identity as if we're all just so homogenous. Why didn't she choose it? And yet she seems to pick Palestinian identity politics pretty straightforward. I want to make sure she said that I'm empowering the community. Salman said her upbringing in Arizona was shaped by a heightened sense of Islamophobia and anti-Arab sentiment that ensued after 9-11. And it's funny how they, they talk in this piece repeatedly about fighting anti-Muslim bigotry, about the need for engagement, and yet they keep referring to our community as one monolithic Muslim community. It's pathological. It's bigoted. I challenged them on Twitter. I said, 35% of our our Muslim community, according to NPR, no far-right organization, it's a leftist organization, according to NPR, 35% voted GOP. And they didn't even report it in this piece. And they kept talking about the Muslim community that joined one Arizona. It's offensive. What other faith community would want to be labeled so monolithically progressive? And they're not progressive. Progressivists, really progressivists, believe in fighting for those principles, not only here in Scottsdale or or Phoenix, Arizona, but in Egypt, in Iran. Are they promoting women's rights, gay rights, freedom of the press? This week, a major meeting was supposed to be happening in Europe, and Honorable journalists from The Guardian on said that they would not participate because Iran executed a leading journalist this week, and they would not, and they boycotted it. Are any of the Islamists in America talking about it? Absolutely not. They are not. And yet this piece goes on to identify us Muslims as somehow our lead identification in the piece still remains today to be victimization and Islamophobia as if we have no other mechanism of identifying ourselves, but simply on the brunt of how others hate us and how they're bigoted and this contrived concept of Islamophobia. And I say contrived because, remember, Islamophobia is the term governments like Saudi, Iran, and others use to restrict free speech against their government and say that if you if you disagree with the president, you are maligning Islam. And when the West disagrees with their policies, they are anti-Islam, and thus came the term in the early 90s, Islamophobia. Now it's been adopted by the Islamist platforms here in America to say that that means bigotry. Yes, there is some bigotry against Muslims, but the way we fight that is we fight for the same issues that Americans believe in. We don't carve out our own specific issues and use that as a form of measure of engagement, but rather we look at health care, at 
freedom, at family issues, family values, at at the educational system, taxation, defense, and foreign policy. And those are all issues that should be part of the Muslim fabric, as they are of every faith or those with no faith in America, if we're going to be engaged, but yet the media constantly looks at us through the lens of a monolithic identity group. And again, the primary lens that's used to, if you look at these reports, the reason I wanted to bring this to your attention is, I know many of you may not be looking at the AZ Central or Arizona Republic or whatever, but I have to tell you, from the Biden uh, 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 candidacy on down, and now probably the Biden presidency on down, the narrative, the lens through which we talk about our Muslim communities, not one community, but communities, is that we are, thanks to the Islamist identity groups, that we Muslims are the victims of haters in America. Enough already. This is not only false, but a bigoted approach to a very ideologically diverse faith group. Enough. Stop looking at us through the lens that the Islamists want you to look through so that you're always on the defense. If you're not Muslim, you're constantly apologizing for not hating Muslims, not hating the hijab, not hating other superficial mechanisms of seeing Muslims through their clothes and their garb and and their behaviors rather than through their ideas. How diverse are we? Are they actually progressivists abroad? There was a legislation this week passed in the House which I, I, I can't believe was passed, but let's talk about it. This, this week, Jamie Raskin, a Democrat, Democrat from Congress, passed House bill on heresy, apostasy, and blasphemy. And he wrote a tweet, Today the House stood for freedom of religion and liberty of conscience by passing his bipartisan resolution calling for a global repeal of blasphemy, heresy, and apostasy laws. And he posts on his Twitter feed his remarks. It was passed 386 to 3. 386 to 3. Amazing. Fascinating. And and um, my jaw fell to the floor thinking, I, I can't believe this was passed. Now, I have to tell you, and I hate to be cynical, maybe we're making progress, but the cynic in me says when Rashida Tlaib, and especially when Ilhan Omar, one who never found anything wrong with Qatar and Turkey and Iran and others that are Islamist regimes, vote yay for this. Maybe it just means that they wanted to pad their voting record because this has no teeth. I, I don't know. But bottom line is uh, um, House Resolution 512 calling for the global repeal of blasphemy, heresy, and apostasy laws was passed by the House of Representatives by an overwhelming majority bipartisan vote. It called for the immediate release of religious prisoners of conscience worldwide. More than 80 countries currently use blasphemy laws to persecute and imprison religious minorities and dissenters. The House asserted the essential importance of freedom of religion and liberty of conscience globally. And Raskin went on to talk about how authoritarian regimes use arbitrary blasphemy, heresy, and apostasy laws to imprison, torture, and kill religious minorities. And the House called for an end to these egregious human rights violations worldwide. And he notes that his work will continue. And then he quotes Yusuf. More than one-third of countries, 
quoted by United States Commission on International Religious Freedom, maintain the use of blasphemy laws with penalties including fines, imprisonment, forced labor, and the death penalty, as we saw this week with the reporter in Iran. Passed with 42 co-sponsors. The Senate introduced Senate Resolution 485, which is the Senate version of Raskin's resolution. Introduced by Senator Lankford, Republican of Oklahoma. Raskin is the executive committee member of the Tom Lantos Human Rights Commission and partner of the Defending Freedoms Project. He advocated on behalf of Abdul Shakur, 82-year-old Pakistani, who was released in March 2019. So this is exemplary. And, and you know, what does it do? I don't know. Maybe it doesn't have any teeth. We'll see. But it, it, it codifies and puts down on paper and a vote what our standards are, not only for the U.S. Constitution and our principles, but what we hold our colleagues abroad and their standards to, and how we advocate for the U.N. Declaration, the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. Very important. Next, there's been a lot of debate. There's been a lot of debate in the Muslim community about women imams. And, you know, I think it's key. If you look, there was a story out this week about what women imams, uh, have they had congregations? Have they had a following? And what are they doing? Are they progressing or are they faltering and being oppressed in their movements? And this story that came out just a few days ago by Hannah Steinkamp Frank talks about how from France to China, Female imams not only provide spiritual guidance, but also encourage diversity and dispel stereotypes. And she points out at the beginning, like most modern religions, but probably Islam's the worst among them, I would say, it's dominated by men. Virtually every mosque in the world is led by a male imam, and yet a quiet trend of more women imams, a practice that dates back centuries, is not only providing a different kind of of spiritual guidance, but also encouraging diversity and dispelling stereotypes within and outside global Muslim communities. She talked about the first American women to lead a prayer, Amina Wudud, and then Sharon Kankan, the first woman to lead Muslim services in Denmark and Copenhagen. And then she talks about women making inroads in France's Islamic communities, in which they even wrote in France, And with all that's going on in France, I'm surprised the women imams haven't been tapped by the French to become more prominent leaders. They said, there is nothing exceptional about being a woman imam, writes Eva Janadine and Anne-Sophie Monsenet in a recent piece, opinion piece for the French Daily Le Monde. They highlight the existence of Muslim women leading prayer going back centuries. They hold women-only congregations within progressive groups, but they promote a more inclusive vision of Islam and sometimes within mixed-gender religion spaces. And they've made a difference. They've, uh, they've had two professors created the Voices of an Enlightened Islam Movement in 2018 to promote studying Islam through a lens of equality and freedom. Now that's, that's what I'm talking about. They created the Samorg Mosque Project in 2019 to study the Qur'an from a contemporary perspective and not privilege the imam over the congregation members. 
They even argue as imam leaders that Islam itself and their interpretation isn't inherently sexist. And yet the inequality persists. The misogyny persists. It's linked to the immobility of conservative and patriarchal mentalities that must be distinguished from the prince, from the spirituality. That's so key, isn't it? The immobility of conservative and patriarchal mentalities that must be distinguished from spirituality. Isn't it true that the backward interpretations are just linked to constant, uh, just ossified, conservative and patriarchal interpretations of Islam. And then they go on to talk about other communities from France to China. And China, going as far back as the 18th century, women-only mosques evolved out of schools as a way to both educate women and preserve the country's Muslim community, which has a long history of being oppressed and assimilated. In the Uyghur Muslim area of Xinjiang province, After having been interned, women were forced to take birth control and be sterilized. Elsewhere in China, however, groups of Muslims have been able to practice freely, often because of their compliance with the government. And if you look at the history, the history is one of assimilation. It's one of uh, not combatism and and militantism, but rather assimilation and modernization. And as I've always said, I truly believe, and, and this story is important to me because regardless of what you believe conservative, traditional roles are, whatever those might be, the key is freedom, equality of choice, equality of belief, and equality of identity. So whatever roles people may choose within their own families, it is important that we have spaces in which Women who choose to lead can be given the opportunity to do so. And that is the sign of a healthy community that can grow. So when you look across the world and you see 99.99, it's not 100%. That's achievement. That's advancement, right? It's starting to go down to 99, 98. I think until we get to 20, 30, 40% with female leadership. And if not 50%, which would be equality. We're going to see continued obstacles for reform and ossification of the need to reinterpret passages that give women half the right to vote, half the right court or the right to property, inheritance, etc. All the other legalisms that control their lives through a patriarchal system. Last, I have to spend a couple minutes on this unbelievably heinous piece by CNN that might as well have been written by the Saudi Ministry of Tourism in order to bring people to Saudi Arabia to visit. Now listen, I've been the first to acknowledge the fact that Saudi Arabia is making some progress. They still haven't entered. Now there's a fourth nation, Morocco, that recently acknowledged Israel as an equal partner recognized its existence and abandoned the anti-Zionism of its past. Saudi Arabia still has not done that, but it is hopefully inching towards that, and it would be a major, major change if it did that. But having said that, you may recall that in what would appear to be a sweeping change, the left 
with the Jamal Khashoggi assassination and killing by the operatives in Turkey on behalf of the Saudi government, all of a sudden they were focusing on this story for months and months and months. Why? Because it fit the narrative against Trump, who was trying to recalibrate a Middle East in which Iran had been handed all the goods and the billions and the and the the nuclear dreams, if you will, while the Saudis were left abandoned. So they came closer to Israel, and President Trump then in 2016 began a process of recalibrating sort of the American relationship with the Arab-Sunni side of the equation. And the media, despite its sycophancy for many of the billions that come from Gulf states, Qatar, etc., and Saudi Arabia seemed to abandon that because its anti-Trump axis dominated that. But then, remember the Saudis were taking on the Brotherhood, so Jamal Khashoggi, who might have, you know, who probably was part of the, the Brotherhood Islamist ideology, was part of that militant war against the Islamists and went an extrajudicial, underwent an extrajudicial assassination by an authoritarian regime as the Saudis are wont to do with those that are their enemies domestically. Now, CNN seems to have swung back, back to its old time. And, you know, neither extreme is helpful. So apologizing for a regime that was funding the Brotherhood and Islamist movements and Wahhabism and sort of a monolithic Islam for decades was not right and it's not right now and also being hypercritical and not watching their changes and holding them to account for advancements that they make is also probably not reasonable Nick Robertson one of the apologists for CNN for Saudi Arabia noted Saudi Arabia this week in a piece he noted Saudi Arabia has changed beyond recognition but will tourists want to visit CNN international diplomatic editor Nick Robertson wrote about the incredible things he has experienced in Saudi Arabia over the past two decades according to a Fox News report including climbing mountains scuba diving and driving rally cars yet none of these has affected me as much as the moment I felt Saudi change it's no exaggeration to say that the recent this according to Robertson The recent social upheaval in the country has been profound and fast. He describes a sense of lightness, a freedom to make choices. Really? What choices? Mohammed bin Salman, MBS, stripped power from what Robertson described as the religious police. That's true, he did. But how much did that really change the freedom of the society, to have freedom of choice and debate ideas and modernization? Maybe they could have wrestling, as I talked about with uh, the WWE going there. Maybe they could have driving, more freedom for women to drive, etc. Small progress, but true democracy, true freedom of expression, journalism, liberalism, had not become part of what they're doing. He highlighted how women work in offices side by side with men, something that was illegal until a few years ago, and credited to the crown prince. And his decision to challenge the clerics who had given rise to the generations of orthodoxy 
Well, okay, if you challenge them, where are the clerics? And this is the key. If this is really journalism, there should, and this is why I lauded the Emirates for the changes they made, because there were clerics that were lauding the relationship with Israel, that were talking about the need to end anti-Semitism and begin looking at their Jewish brothers and sisters as equals. That is real reform. But we had not seen this. The royal family might have changed the rules. Yes, it was difficult to do that, but you can't change the rules without changing the ideology underpinning the change, or else it's simply quixotic and will come and go and not be supported. Robertson reported a remarkable boom in terrorism despite the coronavirus pandemic without any data to uh, back that up or any assessment of what's going on. Journalists imprisoned, tortures continue, executions continue. So to say that there's reform is simply the MBS style versus the previous styles. Might be less Wahhabism, might be more pro-Americanism, might be some entertainment-type liberalism. But is there theological reforms against Wahhabism? That has yet to be said. And so bottom line is, is will the American media ever become arbiters of real modernization? And we saw the House pass this legislation against blasphemy laws, against apostasy, and yet... When we do reports on these countries, we can't even report on it. The word apostasy and blasphemy wasn't even in this report from CNN once. Is that real journalism? It is not. So please make note of that next time you hear a report about how about how upset they are about Khashoggi's assassination and others. It's all political opportunism. and has nothing to do with actual principles or consistency. All right, folks, stay safe. Stay healthy. It's always great to be with you. And... We'll be back next week and reform this. Find me on Twitter at Dr. Zudi Jasser, D-R-Z-U-H-D-I-J-A-S-S-E-R, and also at Reform This Radio. God bless. We'll talk soon. Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser on the Blaze Radio Network.